Hey, it's your host, April. This show, The High Guide, talks about altered states of consciousness brought on by cannabis and psychedelics and is intended for audiences 21 and over. If you've been listening to the show for a while and you like what you hear, please leave us a rating, a review, or a heart wherever you listen to podcasts. And lastly, I'm not a medical professional. If you are experiencing any mental or physical health concerns, please seek a licensed medical professional. Hey everyone, it's April, your host here on the High Guide podcast, and today is Magic Mushroom Day. Happy Magic Mushroom Day. So I had to release an episode before we officially begin releasing new episodes next week. This is audio that I recorded in June at the MAPS conference with Senior Policy Analyst for Transform Drug Policy, Steve Rolls. Great conversation on what is happening around the world with legalization and decriminalization and what's worked over the last two decades that he's been working in harm reduction drug policy. Also, this episode is a precursor just to let you know that we're here and we're starting new episodes next week. Rather than dropping on Friday, all of our new episodes will drop on Tuesday. And also beginning next week, we're going to release two episodes per week, one on Tuesday and one on Wednesday. On Wednesday, beginning next week, we'll start a three-part series with Jennifer Chesick, author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, who is coming to Seattle on November 15th. I will be moderating a conversation with her and a book launch. You can find out more information about that event in the show notes. Also in the show notes, if you follow that Eventbrite link, you'll see that we have a series of events that I will be moderating and hosting every Wednesday beginning October 18th here in Seattle. So definitely get your tickets. These events are going to sell out. They are microdose events. Mm, There's a gift with each purchase of your ticket thanks to our sponsor of Like Minds. Of Like Minds is Seattle's trusted source for psilocybin and also the sponsor of this show. So you're going to learn more about this brand over the coming weeks. For now, I leave you with me in discussion with Steve Rolls. My name is Steve Rolls. I'm Senior Policy Analyst for Transform Drug Policy Foundation, which is a UK-based non-profit charity. We do policy analysis and advocacy in the drug policy and law reform space. So we do, we advocate specifically for an end to the sort of prohibitionist paradigm and the war on drugs. A lot of our work has focused on modeling how a post-prohibition world would work. Okay. So looking at models for regulating legal drug markets in a post-prohibition scenario. So mm-hmm. how would that work? So we look at all we looked at all drugs. Mm-hmm. We set up about 25 years ago. And oh, that's amazing. Yes. Yeah, can I just interrupt you for one second? If you set it up 25 were you a part of the 25 years ago? Yeah, I was the okay. first yeah, I was I didn't set it up myself, but the person who set it up I was then employed, yeah. Okay. So you had some predictions, and you had some, this is how we're going to map it out. This is how we'd like to see ketamine yeah. go to market. This is how we'd like to, <laughs> yeah. I would love to know how it's actually well, transpired. I mean, we operate internationally. So there's actually, I mean, most of the action so far has been around cannabis stuff, mm-hmm. inevitably, I mm-hmm. guess. So, yeah. and I, for me, it's amazing because I looked when we started and cannabis legalization hadn't happened anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was sort of legalization in the Netherlands, but it was sort yeah. of high. And then about, you know, about 10 years ago, Colorado and Washington, 2012. Thank you, by the way, for saying Washington. I live in Seattle. At the same time, you said Colorado because very few people people know that. It's like, no, it's Washington as well. I mean, they took a little bit longer to get get it up and running. So they did. Yeah. I mean, Colorado kind of got the first doors open. And then Uruguay. And then things started happening. And so for us, it was really rewarding because we've been by that point, we'd already been doing like we'd done like, you know, 15 years of 
advocacy and then stuff started happening. So it starts to move from an advocacy and campaigning position to uh, engagement policymakers to actually do... But because we'd done a lot of quite sort of nerdy technical stuff about how you would regulate, mm-hmm. you know, licensing of vendors and packaging and mm-hmm. product controls and in market architecture and tax and price and all, all these kind of the details of, yeah. that you have to go through when you regulate something. Right. When these policymakers got to the point where they were ready to move... We then often had an opportunity to go sit down with them. So I worked with the Federal Task Force in Canada on their regulation model, and we worked with the government in Uruguay Mm -hmm. quite closely. I mean, it's a small country. It's easier to have easier access to power. And we worked with the government on their model, and and subsequently in Mexico, we we had an allyship with a Mexican NGO, and we took the court cases that led to legalization Mm -hmm. in, in Mexico. And, and now there's all this stuff happening in Europe. There's a sort of second wave of European-style uh, legalisation happening. And we're working with the governments in, in Luxembourg and, you know, on a consultancy basis. So it's been nice, really, for us to move from a kind of campaigning position to a consultancy with governments position. Right. Instead of giving governments a hard time, you're sitting down with them and it's tactical. designing yeah. the market architecture of these things. And, I mean, our focus has been very much on a kind of uh, prioritizing public health and social justice and sort of sustainable development. So we're trying to get these things in an international perspective as well as just domestic law. And some of that has raised interesting questions about how we work with industry. So we don't take any industry funding. I mean, we obviously work with industry because they are a key stakeholder. Yeah. Um, and we're not anti-industry, but we've done quite a lot of work looking at preventing kind of the emergence of monopolies or oligopolies. So the kind of thing that's happened with the alcohol and tobacco industry globally, where you've got four or five big mega companies who control like 80% of the global market. And it's not to sort of be opposed to competition or entrepreneurship to say, actually, when you get companies that big and powerful, it can distort your policymaking priorities. So it's not an anti-business perspective. It's an anti-monopoly or oligopoly and preventing the kind of corporate capture that can follow on from that, where they use their lobbying might and their PR machines and big fat budgets to change policy in ways that isn't that serves their interests rather than the public good. Yeah, it's not anti-monopoly; it's pro-consumer. I, at the end of the day, yeah, you're trying yeah, to protect, yeah, you're trying to protect people. consumers, and I d- yeah. you know, it doesn't. It, but also the wider society as well. It's not just the consumers, you know, that because these markets right. do impact on everybody, and there's tax revenue which gets spent more broadly, and all, all of those things. So, right. so that's it's good in a way that the, the debate has moved from should we legalize and regulate drug X, Y, Z, to when we do it, or if we do it, or now we're doing it. How do we do it? How do we get it right? What are the sort of contours of your regulatory infrastructure that will deliver on our shared goals, be that, you know, public health or Mm -hmm. social justice or economic or environmental or whatever it is? And then you get then you get into the interesting arena of, you know, whose goals are we going to prioritize? Because if you prioritize economic goals, you'll get one model. If you prioritize public health, you might get another. If you prioritize child welfare, you might get another. Mm -hmm. And, and, And so and. Different stakeholders will have different priorities mm-hmm. and they all need to be involved in that discussion and there has to be compromise. And this is the kind of interesting bit of the sort of policy debate where you start to get into that those fights because sometimes different priorities are at odds with each other. Not always. I mean, everyone wants to see crime reduced and everyone wants to see public health sure. enhanced. But yeah. something like, if you look at, say, um, tax on cigarettes, mm-hmm. public health people say, put the tax up, put the tax up. 
because we know that if you put the price up, you'll dissuade people from consuming as much and you get less smoking and then less health harm to do with smoking. <laughs> and you're okay, that makes sense. And a lot of places have put the tax right up. But if you put it up too far, you start to incentivize smuggling and counterfeiting. So you get illegal activity. So you've then got this trade off of conflicting priorities because the police will be saying, hang on, can you keep the price down a bit? Because otherwise we're going to get the smuggling. And that's, a, that's bad. And so you, uh, that's a sort of example of the kind of trade-offs it's not there isn't just and there isn't just one form of legalization you can have very open commercialized markets you can have very strict strictly regulated sort of state monopolies Mm -hmm. and if you look at like uruguay and compare it to their cannabis market compare it to here in colorado you know they don't have uh, branded products you have to be a member i mean it's too restrictive you have to buy it at a pharmacy you have to buy it at a pharmacy i did work on that model i have to say we recommended against some of these things. You, so you know, think that, it's too restrictive? I'm I think membership-based is too restrictive. You have to oh. register to buy from a pharmacy. Uh, okay. And you can imagine, you're a cannabis user, historically persecuted by the, yeah, the right. government and the police and authorities, and you just don't want to be on a database as sure. a drug user. Yeah. You're just not going to want to be. So, right. and, and there weren't enough pharmacies, and you know they should have had dedicated outlets, but they farms for whatever reason, I think the, the sort of medicalization was seen as politically reassuring. Or Yes. I'm sure it was Um, the first step that people wanted to take. I'm connecting some dots from your Twitter. (laughs) Right. When you were saying that you would like in psilocybin as it's commercialized to not see candy. Right. And chocolates. Yeah. And I worked in Canada before it was voted in by parliament. I'm from the U.S. I sold a company into the Canadian market and worked up there. So the rollout for 1018 or 1017, 2018 was only flour. Yeah. Right. Or pre-rolls. Yeah. It was flour pre-rolls. And then they added on edibles. Yeah. That was was my idea. Okay. I want to talk about (laughs) that. Obviously. Right. Yeah. So I I suggested, look, if you're going to have those other things, have a phased rollout. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was purely from a kind of regulatory pragmatism, which was there was an additional regulatory burden and bureaucratic uh, burden associated with edibles and concentrates sure. and things. Um, and you have to set up all this, all these structures, all these institutions to regulate all this stuff. Do it, don't feel you have to do it all, all at once. Mm-hmm. Just do flour to start with, and then do do the other stuff in phase two. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, and it wasn't like as anti the, yeah. the second phase stuff. It was just like look, just yeah. just make life easy for yourself because they've got I think four thousand staff at the institution the regulatory entity oh at health canada yeah mm-hmm. i mean you know there's a lot of people involved yes. in regulatory enforcement and compliance stuff because mm-hmm. these are you know these are big institutional structures people who kind of yeah let's legalize, legalize weed it's kind of like actually there's quite a big institutional regulatory framework that has to go around that it costs money to establish you have to train people you have to design the institutions blah, blah, blah. it's actually quite a big undertaking um, so my thing was, that, you know, don't overload yourself, do it in some phases. And they, they thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it really, from a marketer's standpoint, your job was pretty easy. It was very straightforward. The other question I want to ask you is you were saying about raising taxes on tobacco. Right. And how it gets too high. It will dissuade people mm-hmm. from buying through a legal outlet. Mm-hmm. And people will start smuggling in. So 75% of the weed that is consumed in Canada and in California is still coming from the legacy market because taxes are over 40%. Right. So again, this is a clear... I mean, I think it's a bit less than that in Canada now. It's more like half, okay. 40%. Okay. I mean, but it okay. depends whether you believe, whether you believe yeah. the health, health Canada data. I hope data. that's the case, right? But you can see there's a good trajectory. On year two, it was about 30%. Year three, it was mm-hmm. like 40 And now it's kind of nudged over 50 And 
if it carries on that trajectory, if it gets to sort of 70, 80, you'll then be getting it. You'd think, okay, that's not ideal. Let's normalise at that point. But it's much better than zero, right? Yeah. Tax and regulated and consumer can be confident and there's lines of accountability, all of that stuff. I think the situation in California was a unique of circumstances with a ridiculous grey market or informal market dispensaries, quasi-medical. And so there was that weird historical legacy and that weird historical legacy and market. so much supply. Yeah, I mean, and up in Canada as well. I mean, apparently they were, they burnt 900 tons of, of excess production, which that, that should be like a that crime against illegal. humanity. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, don't burn it. Just, know. But, you know, what do, you, what do they do? I was like, okay, if you can't sell it or it's getting to, can you not like extract the oil or something and store it? Or can you not take the THC out or something? You know, what, right. you don't just so burn it. Yeah. Unless right. it's in an enormous 900 ton joint. But that, <laughs> That's amazing. I don't, I don't that will, can, oh, the whole world comes in. I, I don't know how big that would be. But um, I mean, on the, like the chocolates thing is a good example of the kind of policy dilemmas you have. I totally understand why people like infused edibles, whether it's cannabis and mushrooms. And, I, and people like chocolates, people like gummies. Yeah. You're kind of like, well, why don't we have infused? And it's like, yep, yeah, that's, I totally get that. And I, I don't object to people having them and consuming them. Mm-hmm. But there is this, there's a public health concern about paediatric poisonings and it's not it's relatively minor in public health terms you have but where there has been legalization and commercialization of cannabis and candy infused edibles gummies whatnot have become much more available there has been an increase in pediatric poisonings now the numbers are still quite small it might have gone from 40 a year in colorado to 200 a year or something okay or I, I haven't got the exact numbers, but it's, it's lowish numbers like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of them, I think, were particularly serious, if that sounds a bit uncaring. But no, you know, there aren't a lot, no you know, no one died. Okay. I don't think there was sort of like any long lasting medical harm, mm-hmm. certainly not. And compared to the numbers for poisonings from I don't know, prescription medicines or cleaning products, it's tiny. That, that which is in thousands. Totally. So you might think, well, is that and really an, more is that really an issue? Than, yeah. It's an issue when you have the opponents of legalization going, look, you legalize it and you get fi- the, the the increase of fivefold of kids. What's more important, my right to be able to have gummies, or <laughs> the fact that this is a pain in the ass for yeah. everyone else who's trying to legalize afterwards totally. because. It comes up again and again and again. And now it may be a bit of a bullshit argument. Oh, yeah, gummies and kids. and But it just keeps coming up and it's politically very potent. I, you know, it's coming up in Europe. I can, you know, people just to let people in the US know that every time legalization comes up in Europe, people go, you're putting cannabis in sweets and kids are going to eat them. And so what, what it's doing is it's create, it creates this political headache, as well as being a legitimate public health concern, albeit a fairly marginal one. It's a political headache for other reformers because it's just handing to the sort of Kevin Sabets, smart approach to marijuana type people who just bring it up every time. And they've got a point. Right. They've kind of, you know, you can't say that it's, I mean, they come it's up with all untrue. kinds. It's not untrue. No, they may come up with lots of bullshit, but right. they kind of got a point with that. And it's like, so we've sort of said, okay, let's not have cannabis infused confectionaries particularly when they're in branded colored wrappers that look like regular candy i'm not going to show you my psilocybin chocolate covered caramels with a bright yellow wrapper that I- <laughs> yeah, but the thing is i can see i totally understand why people want to have their boutique truffle chucky <laughs> mushroom thing i understand that and you know and i totally get my consumers want those things and i'm sure they're lovely products and like but right at this moment in time 
like a bunch of headlines about kids eat and there was one in the Guardian last week okay so there was a story uh, there was a thing about how mushroom there's been an increase in mushroom infused chocolate poisonings mm. and there were some horrible stories about kids getting freaked out and blah 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 again nothing awful happened and they were sort of sedated and a day or two later they were fine but it just it may you know it just makes life difficult yeah because you go well, look they're going to commercialize it they're going to put it in sweets kids are going to eat it what are you doing and it sounds that seems very responsible and it is quite irresponsible mm-hmm. and you can blame the parents and i'm not saying that if you went to a guided retreat or something if you had your stuff in a chocolate that's that would be mm. that's different okay i think if you had tinctures or powdered mushroom form mm-hmm. that you can easily make into something i mean you've got a tincture yeah, you can just great. stick it on a sweetie anyway it's mm-hmm. only a drop isn't it right yeah you can put it on any, literally any food you want mm-hmm. yeah um, if you've got dried mushrooms you can stick them in an omelette you can put them some honey whatever you're not i'm not saying no one can have edible products it's just branded mm-hmm. it just it's a bad look Bra- I appreciate right, at that this distinction. political yeah. juncture huh. it's a bad look forever because powerpoint slide of the candy bars that look like reese's pieces or whatever mm-hmm. They just come up and it's kind of like, got a point. It's not to be sort of churlish and prohibitionist, but it's like, can you just hold off on that shit for a bit? Let us get the law changed. And then maybe at some point in the future, you can do it. But people... They well, want to innovate. They want to entrepreneur. They they want to make money. And I they understand. They want to make money. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's what it. And I understand that. It's like, but is your need to make money from your boutique psilocybin chocolates? Not you. I mean, no. One. Yeah. It's a, it's is a it more question. important than you know us getting the law changed in Germany or us getting the law changed in us like us Europeans getting the law changed in or, or somewhere else in the world? And it just so it's little things like that. I mean, you know, it's not the biggest deal, but it's just one of those things. I because I, yeah. I engage in that debate, you know, every day in high level policy forums. So it comes up in the UN. I've been in the UN, and people like him to bet stand up at the UN and will give a speech, and they'll have a slide of the gummies with the packaging, and yeah. and you're kind of like, oh, well, it's kind of got point. <laughs> But like there's an inevitability and then I have to then stand up at you and go, yes, but we can legalise it, but not do that. We have options. These are decisions that we are now empowered to make as regulators and policymakers. Um, Or we could do it in phase two. Or we could say, yes, you can have some edibles, but let's not have candy ones. Or you could say, let's keep it to cannabis oil and, you know, psilocybin tinctures um, or powder form. And if people want to prepare that at home, then they can do that. And that's fine. You can do whatever you like with Mm -hmm. it. But okay. So anyway, well I, ha- well, I have questions along those lines. So the reason that I have a chocolate-covered caramel right. with psilocybin in it in a bright yellow package is because I launched a psilocybin company underground in Seattle last year. Because with this podcast, which I started over two years ago, that was the question that I, I got the question that people got about weed 10 years ago. Where do I get it? And then it became, what do I buy? And yeah. then we we're back to where do I get it? Yeah. And so... I didn't really have a trusted source that I could refer to people. So I set it up, made up a name, made up an email and said, oh, you should call this person Mm -hmm. or you should email this person. Learned a lot and now have rebranded it and brought it above ground to launch within Seattle's decriminalized framework, working with the municipality, leading with education, not being able to gift and donate until after you've been through an educational two hours of sitting, right? So my question for you is I am listening to you when you say that the caramels can do harm to all the work that you've right. been trying to do. What else am I not seeing? Because I don't want to happen with high potency. What happened with high potency THC right. happened with 
that I just, yeah. So what? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, with, what are with, some with, really well, good? Do this, don't do that. Well, with I mean, with psychedelics, the thing is, it's not just one. It's not. There isn't just. We're not just talking about one drug here. We're talking about. Yeah. Mescaline, we're talking about DMT, mm-hmm. we're potentially talking about ibogaine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the principles of uh, sort of regulation from a sort of public, of risky products and behaviors from a public health point of view is that you, tar- you identify vulnerabilities and you identify risks and you target them with risk. So, more risky products, you would regulate more. Yes. So, like, if you, have, if you were selling ibogaine candies, <laughs> caramels, I would say, mm, maybe not, you know, yeah. because, you know, ibogaine, it's just a very different kettle of psychedelics yes. to magic mushrooms because it's there's much there's to- some toxicity issues it's mm-hmm. much longer lasting you can have a sort of 30 hour experience mm-hmm. and it can, it's, can be pretty hardcore I mean it's all dose related obviously but yeah. I, you know I would regulate ibogaine a different way to magic mushrooms and the other ones will just come in between it, but it would also depend on the preparation of the product so DMT it's like, are we talking about ayahuasca are you talking about crystals that you would smoke in a vape are you talking about kind of e-cigarette preparations mm-hmm. that you can now get yeah what do you think of the vape pen DMT oil versus the way that people have been consuming it? Because people who are purists do not like this easy access. And they'd also people that someone like you perhaps doesn't like it because it could be mistaken. Yeah, I mean, I think it would need to, as long as it's appropriately labeled and signposted. So you mm-hmm. wouldn't want to mistake it for an e-cigarette or a... Well, they're not right can- now. Underground, they're not right now. They just, there's cannabis no can- Yeah, but you see, but then you get some tedious regulator type like me come along and go, well, there needs to be a, a red sort of triangle on there saying warning. To- yeah, <laughs> and that will happen, you. but obviously not right now. So what about dosing? Like, okay, so these caramels, I'm just using these as an example because it's helpful. They're two grams by weight of psilocybin is what's in the caramel, what it's been formulated with. Right. Is that too high, right? Like, it's also, I don't... I, I kind of think with dose, it's going to depend on which uh, straight type of mushroom it is. Okay. They, 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 yeah. vary, they vary in strength probably by five-fold from the most to the least potent one. So that's a question. So would you say the least is golden teacher and penis envy is the most? A penis envy. I'd never heard of that before today. And I was like, <gasps> you, no, oh, I, no. Okay. I, just, so I was at one of those stalls in the Zimbabwe store and I was like, come on, that's made up. Surely that's made it's up. terrible name, yes. Yeah. It made in, uh, named in Seattle. And actually. I'm guessing it's because the mushroom looks like a <laughs> yes. cock. And I thought, oh, that's hilarious. A donkey, a donkey, what do they call it? A donkey Donkey dick. dick. Donkey I dick, mean, yeah. okay, whatever. But the um, it's a bit like some of this goofy names for strains cannabis beat. strains, yeah. which I also kind of like. Alaskan thunderfuck. Oh yeah, really? Can you not just be, just grow up and just it's just really <laughs> annoying because you you see you sometimes see these these really sort of stiff do- policy documents, government documents, and then yes. they. No, they'll have the yeah. name these goofy names of strains in. Right. I think with dosage, I mean, we, and we've we produced a uh, called How to Regulate Psychedelics, a okay. practical guide. Mm-hmm. It's coming out in a few weeks. Can someone that's not a policymaker read it? And- yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's, right. it's written. We're not assuming knowledge for people. Okay. I mean, it's kind of targeting policymakers, but policymakers who don't know anything about psychedelics. Great. As well, okay. So. That it's a regulatory textbooky type thing. It's not going to be. One you read oh, in a hammock. Stand. It's not yeah. one you read in a hammock on a hammock in the, down at the beach on holiday, but or it won't be on sale in airports and things. But uh, we do talk about dose and that. I mean, I, I think dose needs to be related to health uh, and risk information on packaging. Mm. I think you should have units so you can do incremental control your dose in sort of increments. 
I would have thought with mushrooms maybe two grams is quite... I mean, I, I think you should have them in units from a kind of threshold dose so, and have it in increments from there. Mm. And two grams is, quite, is, is well over a threshold dose. That's, yes. That's a pretty chunky Yeah. Dose. So when you say in units, do you mean in, in one package you'd have a... 250 milligram dose yeah, so and then a five you could well, you, or all yeah, or you're, you're, you that, that, that 200 that 200 that 2 grams it might be in like 4 units yes, or 5 okay. units or something like that sure. so you could have you could say I want a small one a medium one or a, hmm. a bigger one mm-hmm. I mean 3 grams is kind of a 3 grams is a biggish dose oh, yeah. 1 grams kind of thresholdy. so mm-hmm. 2 grams is somewhere in between there meso dose yeah but I so but as long as dosage is related to information at point of sale and on packaging, mm-hmm. saying you know this is like these are the likely effects if you have this dose. If you want to have a, a, a lower dose, have half or a quarter. Maybe mm-hmm. if you make the the product easily divisible, mm-hmm. like pills that you could split. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm not saying, either, but you know, and there will be pill form psilocybin as well. Yes, yeah. Presumably, or tincture, you can have one drop, two drop, three drops. Right. Or capsules, you can have one or two or three. You know, each capsule would probably be a sort of threshold dose, mm-hmm. and you could decide to have two, three, four, whatever. Right. So I think dosage is important because it it's a key variable in the experience and obviously the risk, and people need to be able to make informed choices and having unit dosages that relate to uh, risks and safety and you know in, uh, effect information. I mean, not necessarily bad things to have a bigger dose. Some yeah. people want that. Right. But you want to be able to make those informed decisions. So right. One, I have one last question. Okay, so as I said, I'm working within this decriminalized framework. The idea is that I can move into other municipalities that have decriminalized and work with local cultivators, create these educational events, and do this around North America, really. And I think this is going to move really fast. And I'm curious what you're seeing because people are, and I'm not, it doesn't feel like that's the... I mean, it feels like that here because there's 10,000 trippers in a conference hall (laughs) and they're all talking about it when you're in the halls of power as it were talking to policymakers it doesn't feel like that okay but so these things are going to collide and there will be a period of messy stuff and there'll sometimes two steps forward one step back i think it probably will move quite fast in as far as if you think cannabis moved pretty fast i mean i i I use i'm using kind of cosmic time scale here. I mean, it's a band that's been working on this for 25 exactly. years. Exactly. <laughs> but, but like 10 years ago, nowhere in the world had legalized cannabis. Yeah. Today, you've got 21 states or 22, is it now? You've got uh, Mexico, Canada, Colombia nearly legalized cannabis last yesterday or day before yesterday, but probably will in the next year. You've got South Africa, you've got Thailand, you've got five or six countries, you know, Czech Republic, Luxembourg, Malta, um, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, and in Europe. There's a domino effect has happened. And, you know, some states in Australia, there was a referendum in New Zealand that narrowly lost. I mean, it's moving all over the place on every continent. And 10 years ago, there was nothing. So I think the fact that you've had Colorado, Oregon, a couple of, and all these various few municipalities. Well, Australia's medical, sort of slightly different. Well, a bit, and some of these, and then there are these ones, like Colorado, it's kind of ambiguous. It's 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 framed medically, but actually there's people selling kits there. And if you want to just buy one and grow some shrooms and Mm -hmm. use them however you want, Mm -hmm. recreationally, spiritually, whatever, you can. I think it probably will move quite fast. Uh, It's interesting. I mean, actually, psychedelics generally have not been a big law enforcement priority. If you look at the data, certainly in the UK, I mean, I was looking to the data and there was like seven LSD prosecutions in 2019 
compared to like 1,200 for amphetamines and about 3,000 for heroin. And they're all class A drugs, like Schedule 1 equivalent. Mm-hmm. Schedule one. The police just don't care about psychedelics because there's no significant kind of criminal activity associated with them apart from the fact that they're illegal. And there's no, you know, public health crisis to, to worry about. There aren't, there, people aren't committing crime to buy mushrooms you know so it's a really low police priority which makes me think it's probably a really low political priority to push back on it and there's probably not that much mileage in it you know how much can we hype this up as a kind of big drug threat that some politician can then come and sort of preen and prance uh, sort of prohibitionist credentials to crack down on so I don't know I mean I, I sort of worry that we're regulating the sort of safe drugs first, safer drugs first. Right. And in a way, they are, the, the, the public health pragmatist argument would argue, no, we should regulate the really dangerous ones first because that's where the big win's going to be. I mean, you know, 70,000 fentanyl deaths in, in the US last year. Really, we should be regulating opioids Get to address that. They be, are regulated. Well, that's I mean, what got us into well, this mess. Well, let me regulate them properly. <laughs> right. <laughs> let yeah, let right. me regulate, you know, proper... Pres- proper substitute prescribing and access and yeah. supervised consumption and testing and harm reduction and blah, 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 all that stuff. We and can not eat- taking doctors to golf resorts. And, no, no. Yeah. If you, g- you give me a, a quarter of the DEA's opioid overdose prevention budget and absolute power and I could reduce the overdose deaths by 90% in like a year, it's just not that hard. It's just not that hard. That's really unfortunate that if it's that simple, that all of these people... Well, it went up that. I mean, it went, yeah. it went up tenfold in like five years because yeah. of fentanyl. So we just have to manage. That's the reality. We have to manage it. Yeah. You can't... There's, there's, there isn't an enforcement response to this. The enforcement is what created that problem in the first place by incentivizing more risky products that are more profitable and easy to traffic and all the rest of it. Yeah. We don't have those issues with uh, psychedelics. People don't get addicted to them. People don't die from them yeah okay i'm sure you can find some story somewhere but generally people that people might have accidents once in a while or some there might be some ibogaine issues but generally speaking people aren't dying magic mushrooms i mean we had we're interesting we had legal magic mushrooms in the uk from 2003 to 2005 so we just someone discovered this loophole Mm -hmm. where fresh magic mushrooms weren't covered by our legislation um, and got some official confirmation of this, at which point shops were like, brilliant. <laughs> and they just started selling them, selling fresh magic mushrooms. So within a few months, magic mushroom sales proliferated across the whole country. Okay. And, uh, and then um, it all got a bit out of hand, predictably, because it wasn't probably regulated. And there a few people got uppity about it, and it was shut down a couple of years later. So that was then made Class A, Schedule 1, life oh, wow. in prison. <laughs> Not that that happens, but... The, yeah. And um, I actually looked, I did some research looking into what the public health footprint of that period was. It's like, okay, was there a spike in mushroom-related deaths? Like, no, there weren't any. Was okay. there a spike in A&E admissions? No, the data wasn't even collated. Was there an increase in use? It's like, well, there was actually a bit of an increase in use, but there was a drop in LSD use, a bit of an increase in mushroom use. Those trends had been happening before mushrooms were legal, and they varied more since they were banned. So it's like, how much can we read into that? Basically, there wasn't. The, what I found was nothing. There was no public. You know, if there had been a public health impact of having legal mushrooms, the numbers would show. Yeah, something yeah. would have been yeah. registered on some public health surveillance right. data, and there was nothing. And I said, like, you know, even with a completely unregulated, ridiculous market where you could just walk into these head shops that sell pipes and yeah. papers and stuff, and um, get. <laughs> 
magic mushrooms, nothing bad happened. I mean, yeah. yeah I would like to know the, I think qualitative research needs to happen because maybe a lot of good things happened. Right. I mean, yeah, but for, you see, the thing is, re regulators and policymakers kind of uh, understandably preoccupied with risk management. Sure rather than benefit maximization. I mean, I think it's really important you, you make. And I kind of think the risk management and regulation is probably the, is the appropriate role of regulators and that the benefit maximization is more of a kind of community, social... Oh, yeah, interesting. ...duty or responsibility. Yeah. I think it's a reasonable approach to make. But you could say, you know, I think you could certainly make an argument that regulators could be seeking to maximise benefits as well. But they might see that in more kind of... Policy I feel like terms. in palliative like, care that might come up. Yeah, but then you're in medical space again, therapeutic space. And they're just trying to make sure that the risks yeah, are... I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, yeah. The obvious, the, the multiple obvious therapeutic benefits from psychedelics, which, are, you know, and there's all this research that they're talking about here. It's, there's all this amazing new work coming out showing how they benefit shishal for this, that, and the other. And there's a presentation on anorexia this afternoon. And there's the trauma and PTSD and all that stuff. That's all great, but it's kind of different from the stuff that we're talking about, which is the non-medical use. And that this, and our thing is like, you know, 95% of psychedelic use isn't therapeutic medical totally. stuff. Yeah. It's people having fun in festivals and going to parties mm -hmm. and going to gigs and, you know, just having a laugh in the park. And But the fact there's no money behind that, the fact that we, you don't have some rich tech bros, you know, kind of wanting to... And, and these sort of glossy Sunday supplement, mag, endless stream of sort of glossy magazine features about these the amazing potential psychedelics for mental health and all the rest of it. You've got 95% of the psychedelic use, but it's, it gets about 5% of the attention. So for us, and, and our, this new book we're writing, which is free to download, by the way, I'm not trying to sell it, is... Um, you should try to sell it if you want to. Too. Well, you can buy it if you, if you want to buy a copy, you're welcome, <laughs> but um, we're also selling free. It's uh, trying to sort of re, uh, rebalance that discussion a bit and just uh, you know Amazing. people and people can come and disagree with what we're proposing and that's fine but you, we, we need to be but you're operating in reality yeah a you need to be talking about it and we're not at the moment enough because even you know even in colorado i've been talking to some of the colorado regulators the last mm -hmm. few days um it, it's very much framed in the therapeutic uh, healing centers right. and, and plant medicines and and the kind of the, the, the non-medical bit is kind of all nudge nudge wink wink within the decrim space so you can buy your stupid bag of sterilized oatmeal or whatever the hell that is that you squirt the spores into and then you leave it on your windowsill for like there's about 20 stalls in the you've seen them right there's okay. about 20 stalls selling those because kits because that's the only thing you can sell legally right but yeah. the, so what you've got is you can sell mushrooms but they're kind of delayed right. you have to wait five weeks before you can have them yeah right. but you, they're selling them mm -hmm. But they're not selling them. So it's, it's actually kind of like, oh, come on, just let's grow up and just let people sell them. Well, I'm also selling them but not selling them. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there are people selling them, then selling them and not selling them there as well. Like you can get a chocolate. Oh. We're doing free samples of chocolate because we can't sell them, but you can make a donation. Mm, that sounds kind of like sales. <laughs> it yeah. sounds a lot. Well, you can buy this T-shirt and you get your bag of mushrooms free. It's, like, eh, it's kind of like... And that, but the fact that you're pushing people into this space where they're having to do these sort of loopholes and sort of stupid... It's all so childish. It's like, if you're if just selling mushrooms, just selling mushrooms. So you've got... So you, like Colorado's got this medical system... Um, you've got regulators who are kind of having to set up medical systems, which is weird anyway, because it's not within the medical right. frame, which is kind of not really their job. Or why, why should they be doing that? But then you've also got 
a non-medical market effectively nudge nudge wink wink non-medical market existing in parallel with the kits and all the other peripheral bits yeah. and bobs and, yeah. and all the kind of grey market people selling their caramels or whatever mm-hmm. so I kind of think if we're at that point I mean I really want Colorado to succeed because if they do it and then they can say look actually we had this sort of semi grey market for non-medical mushrooms and nothing bad happened and you might actually get falls in use of other drugs mm-hmm. so another thing that I'm quite interested in the recreational space is low-dose psychedelics, kind of, you know, sort of sparkly dose rather than yeah. sort of elven folk of the forest, <laughs> elven folk of the trees dose. <laughs> leprechaun. Yeah, sub-leprechaun dose. That is actually quite a good substitute in recreational settings for alcohol, alcohol cocaine. Yes. More yeah. dangerous. More risky drugs. More risky drugs. But that, it'd be good if we could have that conversation out in the open, like adults, and not all this arsing around with gifting and grow bags and, you know, calling it plant medicines and healing centres and all this sort of around it. But just like, let's just acknowledge what it is. Acknowledge that these are useful arm reduction tools in social settings as well as potentially beneficial to individuals and communities as well. Let's just have that conversation. And, and I mean, I actually, I asked a couple of the state senators in one of the policy sessions yesterday who were here talking about their medical programs. I got up and said, look, this is great. I was basically said what I've just been saying to you. I said, look, 95% of use isn't medical. Can you see an evolution of psychedelics in the same way that's happened with medical cannabis moving into recreational cannabis? And they interestingly said, yes, they acknowledged that they were in- essentially supportive of that. Okay. But that if they pursued it now, their medical programs would be in jeopardy. So there was a sort of political reality alongside the acknowledgement that it was a good idea. So it was kind of, it was was actually refreshingly honest from them. They were saying, yes, with the one guy who said, yes, I agree with that. And I I would like to get there Mm -hmm. and have that discussion. But at the moment, if I flag legalizing mushrooms or whatever, MDMA or something for non-medical use... I mean, you know, look at MDMA, like 99.9% of it is in recreational settings. Well, yeah. 99.999%. Right. So the clinical MDMA is... And we've is been tiny. healing ourselves all these years in that exactly. way. Exactly. And there was a really brilliant presentation I went to yesterday of Sarah from um, Zendo Project. You should get her in here. Um, she was talking about recreational use and saying that therapeutic community can learn from the recreational scene because mm-hmm. the recreational scene can learn from the therapeutic community and a lot of intention that you can combine sort of therapeutic and spiritual intentions along with your sort of hedonistic pleasure-seeking ones. Those aren't, that's not a weird thing at all. And a lot right. of people do that. Those are discussions that we need to have and how they flow over into formally regulated legal availability as well and access. Because people, you shouldn't be forced to buy illegally, but you also shouldn't be forced to... Go buff. sit in a clinic and... Yeah, well, certainly not sit in a clinic with two therapists and... And $2,000. Yeah, three and a half thousand dollars for your six hours. Bargain. <laughs> I know, it, yeah. I know we have to start somewhere, but... It's yeah, just... I mean, when I saw that price list from Oregon, I was like, you're yeah. just, you're shitting me. Three and a half grand. It's like... And there is this thing of, sort of deserving and undeserving sort of drug users. So you like, and so you've got psilocybin. There's there's a lot of talk about sort of psychedelic exceptionalism. It has some special status amongst drugs, other drugs which are don't have their spiritual magic. You know, and methamphetamine. It's like no, it's like no. It just they're just drugs, and we shouldn't they shouldn't have special status. But even within psychedelic users, you have 
the, the party users second class citizens compared to the spiritual users who are second class citizens compared to the medical users and within the medical users the veterans and the, get special status over other traumatized populations because they're, they're veterans, you know. And it's like, they're not, it's great, veterans get PTSD treatment, psychedelics, yeah. but there are a lot, there's plenty of other traumatized populations yeah, yeah. who could benefit from that, and they're not, who don't have three and a half grand to, to blow on their six hours and integration session. So totally. there's a lot to talk about. And it's good that these conversations are happening and that this conference is, is great in that respect, because at least for all the reservations I have about and some of the things that I felt quite discomforting here, mm-hmm. at least those things are being discuss- discussed, even sometimes at the margins, but they are being discussed and those conversations are happening. So that's... Yeah. It's all good. Well, it's mostly good. I think it's mostly good. <laughs> I think it's... I don't know. That's an all-fair conversation, maybe. It's good. But, uh, you know, my, yeah. you know my, when, if I, when I get home back in the UK from, um, from this trip, although I'm going to Brazil first, actually. I'm going oh, to launch nice. a cannabis book in Brazil. But the, um, when I get back, it has that massive comfort. Like, it'd be like, it was pretty weird. <laughs> It's pretty weird. That's my, my it's take. It's pretty on. weird. There was some really cool stuff. Mm. There was some really disturbing stuff, and literally everything in between. So yeah. that's what right. I'll take away. Well, I'm glad that you're here and that I got to meet you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Appreciate it.